here we are on the fourth Sunday of Epiphany, and we are considering the wisdom of God. When was the last time you asked God for wisdom? Maybe for an important decision, a crisis, some sort of life direction, some sort of knowledge that will make your situation, your life, just a little bit better. James, the New Testament writer, invites us and He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, we should ask God. And so we do. We ask him for wisdom. But really, what are we asking for? How do we get it? (laughs) And do we just really ask for it and that's it? And then what happens when we get it? What are we supposed to do with it? Some real practical questions about wisdom. And even today, as we consider the fourth Sunday of Epiphany, what has wisdom got to do with Epiphany? Well, let's look at some of those questions together. Before we do, can we pray? God, thanks for your goodness, uh, for the strength and glory of your word. We pray that you would help us today uh, to be enlightened by it and to be uh, not just with more information, but we would be transformed by it and be more faithful in our walk. And so for Christ and his glory and through his spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, the Bible tells the story of God. We're going to go back to the beginning to get to the source of wisdom. I think it might be helpful for us today. And like every good story, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. And so in the beginning, uh, we'll let you all be the beginning people. You can be our Garden of Eden people, if you will. Uh, Your creation in this story. Proverbs 3, 19 and 20 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and by understanding he established the heavens, and by his knowledge the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. There's a place of perfect perfection and fellowship with God and his creation, but then something happened. Adam, Eve, they disobeyed, and we experienced the second part of the story, the fall. He disobeyed, ate of the tree, and they were expelled from the garden into the darkness in fear apart from God, apart from the promises and the hope that he had offered them. Well, still in the middle part of the story, we have the incarnation because these Old Testament promises of of rescue were now coming and had been fulfilled in Christ. Christ, and through faith in him, offers rescue to those of us fallen, all of us in our sin and our disobedience. He provides us hope here in the middle of the story that one day perhaps we can experience all that he promised in creation. Because we ultimately hope for the last part, the last chapter of the story, I guess you all get to be heaven. Well, maybe we can have that hope. But one day, God will make all things new. The fellowship that he promised at the beginning, back in the garden, will be restored. That is the hope of his people all that he intended in the first creation. Well, I tell that story because I want to make an exception because most all of our Bibles tells the unfolding of this story. 
it gives us some measure of movement to, to the end, except for a few books of the Bible. In fact, there's enough material that we want to camp on. It's kind of right here in the middle of the Old Testament, and they're called wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is interesting because it does not advance specifically the story of God. We, we don't see any movement. It, and it's not Mosaic law that says, here's some more rules to follow. Rather, wisdom literature, it, rather than advance the story of God, it helps us understand how to live while we're here in the middle of the story. Do you know what a freeze frame is in drama? It's, there, there's a play happening and the characters are moving about and then suddenly everybody freezes and the narrator of the story often steps out and gives you a little bit of behind the scenes to tell you what's really going on, how you should really be living, how you should really be responding to the story. That's a lot like wisdom literature. Rather than prescribing rules, wisdom literature saying, this is what it could be like if you lived the way God had planned for it in the beginning. What life with God is like. Wisdom literature shows us the kind of life known at the beginning in the garden before the fall, before a life of folly. Through the wisdom literature, God is inviting you and I, the readers of this wisdom literature, uh, to live wisely here in the middle. What is the wisdom literature? Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon. What am I missing? Ecclesiastes and some of our Psalms. Wisdom literature. How do we live here with God as he intended? A primary voice in wisdom literature is Solomon, the son of David. And he speaks to his son as fathers do to their sons. And he says, listen, son, there's two ways to live in this world. You can live by the folly of the world, the world's wisdom, or there's a better way. We can live by wisdom. And so we ask the question, we have to put it right out front, what in the world is wisdom. And so we'll start there. When you hear this word or this word wisdom or wise, we often think of the phrase, hey, um, let me give you a word to the wise. Sometimes we consider people to be wise people. You might say that, oh, she's as wise as an owl. Ever hear that phrase before? Maybe you don't know anybody that's wise as an owl. Well, that, that's an interesting phrase. We're going to actually come to that in just a bit. In our passage in 1 Corinthians this morning, it most likely has roots in that culture where the, the Greeks at the time worshipped the goddess of Athena upon whose arm sat an, an owl, a symbol of, of wisdom, of war, and the arts. I thought that was kind of an interesting comp combination, war and the arts. I don't know. The owl is a symbol of this high achievement of man. Knowledge is supreme. Knowledge is wisdom. Uh, this vi vision uh, or version of wisdom, worldly wisdom, we might say, for us today, it might be applicable. Hey, if you just go to college, you you'll get wise. Or 
If, if, you, if you just get your PhD and become a doctor, you'll, you'll be wise. If we can just get some more information, we'll be wise. And our, I'm afraid that our lives are narrowed by this, this view of wisdom. We, we do it with our kids, right? We say to them, make wise choices, right? Make the wise choice. Even when we pray. In our faith, we, we do this. We, in the face of decision, we say, oh, Lord, just give us wisdom. Just give me, help, help me figure this out. Give, it, give us wisdom as though it's some sort of commodity that if I ask for it, he'll give it to me and I can just go on my merry way. That we might live our best life now. Keep us out of trouble. And while it's true that wisdom has to do with good judgment, and good decision-making. It's more than about preserving my own story. And it misses the mark if we just land there and walk away. Because, here, here's, this is important. Actually, it's all important, but I want you to remember that wisdom is not simply some transactional agreement with God. I ask, he gives, I walk away. I owe much of the, what follows to uh, the Bible Project and Tim Mackey. If you've never uh, dug into the material, uh, it's very insightful, and it really gave me a new look at this idea of wisdom. The word for wisdom in the Old Testament is the word hachma. And I just have to let you say it with me because it's a messy word if we do it right. So let's say it together. Hachma. Right. Hachma. It occurs over 300 times in the Old Testament, and it's a beautiful word, and it's important for us to really dig down deep in this this morning. Hakma is a person's approach to living in a rooted relationship with God, out of which, out of which flows the life of God. Let that sink in just a little bit. Let's double-click on it and, and look a little more deeply. Practical hakma, practical wisdom, is it's practical in our focus and it's expressed in giving. None of this is making sense yet. It's, it's focused or has this ethical expression of serving. So when I have wisdom, I am serving. So, and then the third one is that it has this theological expression of actually loving. Hakma, you see, orients our hearts toward God and then toward others. Changes directions on us. You see, wisdom is a relational word. It is not a transactional word. One of the most notable stories in the Bible about wisdom comes from the life of Solomon himself. He thinks that wisdom is a pretty big deal because God asks him in 1 Kings this young leader, the son of David, to take over his throne. And apparently he could have asked for anything. And what does he ask for? We know the story. He asked for wisdom. That night, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and God said, what do you want? Ask it, and I will give it to you. 
Now, O oh Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father, but I am like a child who doesn't know his way around. Here it goes. He says, give me an understanding heart, the expression of love, as we would dig into that, so that I can govern your people well, so that I can give to them, so that I might know the difference between right and wrong, the ethical expression. He, he's actually asking for wisdom in the framework of biblical wisdom of Hakma, that in my relationship with God, I don't just want to get, I want to have wisdom of God so that I might give, that it might flow out of me the goodness of God. So he asked God for wisdom, and contrary to the life of the fool who is fully absorbed and might ask for more stuff, for more self-preserving, self-exalting things that kings might like to have. He asks God for wisdom. The posture of the request is important. Solomon, in his humility, fearfully asks God for something he could not get on his own by simply studying, but God would grant it. He actually summarizes this posture before God in what might be known as the summary verse of the book of Proverbs in Proverbs 9.10. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What? There's something else that qualifies it, right? The fear of the Lord. Well, we have to explore that just real quickly. So what is the fear of the Lord? Uh, it can trip us up a little bit just because of our limited understanding um, are, are we really supposed to fear God? Are we supposed to have that fright of him? Let me give you a couple of pictures of fear, and we can decide, and we can answer this together. Here's picture one. So here we have Adam in the garden and Eve, and they're walking with God, and they are actually walking in the fear of God, in awe of his holiness. There they were with God the perfection of his goodness and beauty, creator, creator of the universe, an absolutely other experience. There they were respecting his sovereign rule, his lordship, his reign over everything. Adam worshiped God, giving glory to no other. And there was a sense of delight and joy with God. The second picture, Adam and Eve. As they chose to disobey, they were expelled from the garden. And sin actually turned this fear of God upside down. And now there's fear of judgment and punishment, along with a host of other fears. Adam, outside the garden, is now found what? He's hiding from God. Fearing in all the wrong ways. Fearing that he might be found out. Like us, fearing who might abandon him. Like us, fearing that we might be unlovable. Fearing shame. Fearing the emptiness of evil all around us. Fearing that he might not even matter at all. Which one of the fear of the Lord do you think Solomon was speaking about? It's the first one. The fear of the Lord, living in loving respect and awe of God. It aligns with his character. And the book of Proverbs, then, is a contrast of wisdom. Life with God or a life of folly, a life of fear. The story of God, the one we just spoke about earlier, is about God's plan to restore God's people, his creation, to that garden life, to that 
place of restoration, the place where wisdom is lived out relationally with God. Here's a definition again. Wisdom is a person's approach to living in a rooted relationship with God out of which the life flows. This is a, a tremendously long introduction to wisdom because now we're going to get down to some brass practical tacks on this. How do we get this kind of wisdom? How do we get this kind of wisdom that's relational, that actually has a, a multi-dimension to it that's just not transactional? Well, we heard the answer to this in our scripture reading earlier this morning. I'm going to listen to part of it again as I read it, because Paul is writing in the context of this first century Corinthian world who really thought a lot of themselves, what they knew and what they accomplished, how they ruled. Remember, this is a, uh, an early century Greek culture where knowledge is God, and it's ruled by fear of many gods, particularly Athena, this Greek goddess with the owl. You remember her? The Greek wisdom centered on this philosophy and, and the, rational, the rational thought of man that the wisdom of man, like the goddess herself, was really raised on a pedestal. It was seen as supreme, just like the goddess they worshipped. If I can just get enough knowledge. So Paul writes, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. They seek knowledge. But he, God, is the source of your life in Christ, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness. See, Paul says, no, Athena or any other God you might be fearing and bowing before any other God, none of them will give you wisdom. Nothing you can do will gain you the real reason, the real wisdom that you need to live. Because he says, the source of your wisdom is not you, not even your asking, not even your seeking. The real source of wisdom is Christ. It's beautiful that here, even in this scripture and even in the Proverbs, we begin pointing to the source of true wisdom. We turn to the source of wisdom, and that is Jesus himself. You see, Jesus is the ultimate expression of the word you so love to say, and we'll say over lunch today, Hachma. He is the expression of wisdom. You see, Jesus is God's way back to this garden that he created for us to live in, where the fear of the Lord does away with all other fears, where we dwell with Jesus, who is our wisdom. Now, it's important to see that it is Jesus who is ever serving, ever giving, and ever loving. Here in the middle, as we await this unfolding of God's story, there really are only two ways to live. 
the way of folly, the, the way of the world, pursuing our own wisdom, actually pursuing our own salvation, the way of the fool, that all that we worship will one day go up and spoke. And then what's offered is the way of the wise, walking with God, pursuing life only through Jesus. And I have to pause and ask a question. Have you encountered Jesus in this way? A, a way that gives you life, that actually invites you back to a life that God has planned for you? Have you ever acknowledged the words that Jesus promised when he said, <clears throat> I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and nobody comes back to the Father except through me. Nobody can actually gain wisdom like I offer it. And so perhaps encountering Jesus today in this way, you might say, yes, I need that kind of wisdom. Receive his invitation to come and enjoy a life of wisdom. So there, there is a question that's outstanding. Um, and that's, what's the evidence that you are wise? How do you know when you've got wisdom? How do you know, I guess, just what's it look like? Well, the definition that we looked at earlier gives us a bit of a clue. Remember, wisdom is a person's approach uh, to living a rooted relationship with God through Christ, out of which flows the life of God as the life of God flowed out of Christ, right? So if you want to know if you're walking in wisdom, if you want to know if the result of your prayers are, is wisdom, it will be seasoned with a practicality that's focused in our, in our giving. I mean, giving to one another, not financially necessarily. It'll, there'll be evidence that there's an ethical expression of serving one another, There'll be an expression in our lives that is full of love and goodness. See, worship, again, is not transactional. I pray, he gives, I walk away. It is relational. I pray, I, I trust Jesus to fill me and use me so that I might be an ambassador, that I might be the light and life of Christ. You see, the evidence of true wisdom is a fruitfulness of giving and serving, and loving. Those who are walking in godly wisdom are decidedly others-focused. Boy, that's a big distinction from the kind of prayers that I often pray, pray, in contrast to my own personal gain that I might just get through this life. And so on this fourth Sunday of Epiphany, we can finally see where Epiphany and wisdom come together. Because in asking for wisdom, where we are invited to embrace this truth that the wisdom of God, we, we pursue the mission of God. Wisdom is missional. Wisdom is intended for us to receive and to give the life of God to the world. We are to be a people of light, hope. The spirituality of epiphany 
is that Christ might be made manifest through our lives. And this is the heart of wisdom, that when I pray for wisdom, I pray for God's life to come and live through me. Wisdom is not something we seek so that we might just have it. Wisdom is something that we gain so that we might give it, the life of God, away. And so when we ask, God, give us wisdom, what would be the fruit of that? Back to James, the New Testament writer, often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. He gives us an idea of what it might look like as he addresses wisdom. Where he says, if you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly and unspiritual and demonic. For wherever there's jealousy and, and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every kind of evil. Here it is. But the wisdom of God from above is first of all pure. It's peace-loving. Kind of sounds like Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Living the kingdom of God in this world. Peace-loving, gentle at all time, willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and it's full of good fruit and good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap harvest, a harvest of righteousness. So when you pray, when we seek the wisdom of God, expect what he might do through you as he answers in faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you bring us back to the center of all Christian living. Through your life, your death, and your resurrection, you invite us back to the garden, back to the place of walking with God, back to the place of fearing him, back to the place of walking in wisdom so that we might be a people who give and serve and love for the glory of your name. And so immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.